Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories sold worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Hello, we're coming to you from the Sunbury Press studio at the historic Christian Baker Farm near Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. Today's guest is Maxim Furick, the author of Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy. It's 356 pages of stories and pictures about the NEPA, or Scranton, Pennsylvania area music scene, from the 1950s through the 1980s. For sale at Sunbury Press and wherever books are sold. Maxim, welcome. Thank you, Lawrence, and thanks for the invite to the uh, Sunbury podcast. Looking forward to uh, to the interview. Well, I'm I'm seeing here that you're a quote unquote rock journalist, and I know obviously that's not about geology, but rather music. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got to be a rock journalist, and what does that mean? Yeah, well, I, you know, I certainly have a passion for rock and roll, and uh, I used to work as a, as a music critic for some of the local uh, papers in, in NEPA, northeastern Pennsylvania. But um, I consider myself a rock journalist, and by that, I take a look at the culture of rock and roll through a, I don't know, I guess I would say like a psychological or sociological lens. And I try to validate uh, the music. And I always felt that that music has been transformative. You know, if you look at songs like Blowing in the Wind, uh, We Shall Be Released, A Change is Going to Come, all of those those songs were uh, anthems for the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And so, you know, music is just so important. And then then again, for us baby boomers, uh, there's the date of April 3rd, 1964, where the Beatles had the top five songs in the United States. And that, you know, the Beatles, again, were the band that just like transformed America and American youth and just did so much to go and jumpstart, you know, popular music and rock and roll. So, you know, I'm a true believer in in uh, in the in the power of, of music and and a proud rock journalist. So that's what my uh, my book, Somebody Else's Dream, uh, sort of uh, embodies. Well, I completely agree with you about music. And, and I love that you mentioned the Beatles. And uh, my earliest life experiences, I guess, were Beatles. I was born right around that time. And so my entire early years were all uh, Beatles-oriented. Love the Beatles. And, uh, anyway, you know, about the rock journalist thing, I, I get the... Um, you know, it seems like you're getting into also like an academic view of things. What's your education with this? Is this something you studied or is it something that you've just picked up? Over no, the not at all. Like a lot of us, like even like so many of us authors, you know, a lot of us, you know, didn't have formal training in English or English literature or any of that. But no, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's in communications. And my background is I worked, uh, I was in charge of a, a drug and alcohol program. So, you know, I have a strong uh anti-drug bias and even in somebody else's dream there was an anti-drug drug subtext where i talk about the substance abuse and the self-destruction of people like eric clapton and sly stone and delaney bramlett and i talk about those folks that surrounded the boys in dakota you know the the people that are in my the bands that are in my book but i don't specifically take a look at the boys in dakota and you know ask 
you know, if they did drugs or what drugs they did. That wasn't part of my narrative. I didn't care about that. I wanted to talk about their music and their accomplishments. But yes, I do have a, a strong anti-drug message in my book and also a lot of comments from Frank Zappa, who was a libertarian who did not believe in censorship or any of that. And even with Frank Zappa, he had a really interesting take on drugs. And he said that if you want to do your drugs, go ahead and do them, you know, in the safety of your living room, you know, not behind the wheel of a car, not where you could endanger anybody else. But if you want to go and take the chance and roll the dice, go ahead and do that. You know, and that was his live and let live libertarian theory. So I have a bunch of uh, Frank Zappa's quotes in the book, too. So, again, a little sociological slash psychological uh, undercurrent in the book. Yeah, I, I love how you've mixed your your interests, your career, your training uh, all together. I know many of us have maybe gone down one path in life, been educated one way, started a career doing something, and end up, you know, doing other things on the side or become something completely different. You know, in my case, book publishing was not my training, but uh, lo and behold, look what we're doing. So. Yeah, this is. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, regarding and and and, and uh, if I might, uh, the Dalai Lama said that there's many roads that lead to the same place. So <laughs> I think maybe that's what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we're all going to the same place, and it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about maybe let's start with Nipa and the Scranton area. Maybe talk about why that's of interest to you. I'm assuming you're from the area. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm hoping that folks uh, that are hearing this podcast and, and that are uh, music aficionados, I hope they take a, a real good look at this book. Yeah, it, it's about a group called The Boys. They were from northeastern Pennsylvania. Boys spelled B-U-O-Y-S. And in uh, 1971, they had a song called Timothy. Timothy was one of the uh, grossest song, most grotesque songs ever recorded because it was about cannibalism in a coal mine. But Timothy uh, landed at number 17 on Billboard. So at the time, Timothy was the highest charting song in northeastern Pennsylvania. And northeastern Pennsylvania, or NEPA, N-E-P-A, had tons of just wonderful rock bands. I mean, they were just like quality bands. Uh, the competition in northeastern Pennsylvania was fierce. But I wanted to go and get the book out in time for the 50-year anniversary of, of Timothy, which was 2021. So during the pandemic of 2020, I was I ferociously was rewriting this book, researching it, getting it ready, submitting it to Sunbury, you know, going through that, the corrections with the manuscript and everything. But it was probably one of my finest hours because I just uh, was working on it nonstop like a madman, and I wanted to make that 2021 uh, anniversary deadline. So we did, and uh, you know the book has been just had a tremendous response in northeastern Pennsylvania, in, North, in uh, yeah. the Wilkesboro Scranton area. But now my goal, with your help, is to get the word out beyond uh, northeastern Pennsylvania and to tell the world that here is a book that sort of encapsulates the, 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 the history of rock and roll as seen through the eyes of bands like The Boys and, and Dakota. And I think it's an important uh, document that just looks at a whole lot of things like censorship and payola and the drugs 
and the heartbreak and the, you know, just the, I mean, everything that could possibly happen with, with record labels. And uh, uh, even today, if you're in a rock band and you have a hit song, you, you might get like 0.003 cents from Spotify, right. which is, uh, uh, you know, just a, a travesty. It's, it's a sin. You know, uh, these, these rock acts make their music through, through the actual concerts. But, you know, a lot of the uh, musicians, you know, have have been typically exploited. You know, it happened in the 50s and it's happening today. So that's, uh, you know, a, a lot of that is addressed in somebody else's dream. Yeah. Well, so again, my, my message is I'm hoping that people that hear this podcast will take a look at this book and say that, you know, realize that there's something of substance for them. It's more than just, yeah. you know, bands from uh, from the Scranton, Wilkes-Barre area. Uh, we've definitely it goes found, way beyond that. We have, we've definitely found uh, regional books do well regionally, but I, we also try to promote them nationally. And this is certainly a story that could go anywhere. But I, I wanted to just talk with you a bit about the whole acquisition process with this book. I know we were trying to get it out for the 50th anniversary, and I remember it coming to me and and seeing this proposal about the worst song ever. <laughs> and I was like, why would I publish a book about the worst song ever? And it was a great hook that you uh, you provided, and I, I looked into it some more. And this, this book is much more than just about uh, Timothy, the song. Of course, it's a big part of it, but just a lot of depth to it about the music scene in the area over the years. So I guess, uh, why, why don't we jump into the song Timothy a little bit? Uh, maybe the audience isn't familiar with it. Not everybody was around when it hit number 17, and I don't know how much people are playing it these days, but tell us a little bit about the song and, and uh, The Boys. Sure, yeah. The Boys uh, had a contract with Scepter Records, and that was in New York. And Scepter was uh, pretty much known for B.J. Thomas and the Shirelles. Uh, they had a lot of black artists on the label. And I don't think that she- uh, Scepter really knew how to go and handle the boys, you know, a white rock act. But one of the guys that was working there as a, as a, a songwriter engineer was Rupert Holmes. And Rupert was, say, 19 or 20 years old. He was uh, working with the boys. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to write a song, a controversial song that would get the boys notoriety. Because he realized that Scepter wasn't going to do anything for them. And after like one or two record releases, they were going to just let them go. So what Rupert Holmes did was he wrote a song about cannibalism in a mine shaft. And we know it was cannibalism in a mine shaft because uh, at the time, Rupert Holmes was doing a rewrite of uh, uh, 16 Tons for Andy Kim, the Canadian uh, pop star. He was also watching The Galloping Gourmet, and he had also just finished watching the movie Suddenly Last Summer, where there's a scene where these young kids stone and cannibalize this pedophile. So the cannibalism, the g- galloping gourmet, the coal mine thing, all of those themes just seem to converge, and Rupert wrote this song called Timothy. Now, Timothy came out, it, it peaked in 1971. But in 1963, and this was my book, Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Miracle, in 1963, there was the Shepton Mine Disaster uh, that was just outside of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. It was one of the most important stories of 1963, and there were three guys that were entombed. Only two came out, and would you believe it, but there were allegations of cannibalism. 
a lot of the people in that area down in Schuylkill County thought that the uh, surviving miners cannibalized the third guy. So uh, to this day, there's those innuendos that there's that suspicion. Now, we don't know. We, they never found the body of the missing miner. And that was pretty typical for these mining mine disasters. They would just bulldoze the mine. They would concrete it over. They would have a monument and the priest would, would give the last rites of absolution. They typically did this because it was too expensive and too dangerous to go down there and retrieve the body. So what happened in Shepton wasn't wasn't new. But Rupert Holmes always said that he didn't know anything about Shepton. And if he did, he never would have, you know, uh, conjured up the, you know, the, uh, the, the horror, you know, those, those memories. But during the 50 year anniversary of the Shepton mining disaster, he told a reporter from the Scranton Standard Speaker that just perhaps he had heard about Shepton and it got into his, his unconscious his consciousness and he thought that and so at that point rupert holmes opened up the door to possibility that yes he knew about shepton and yes shepton the the song timothy was about the 1963 shepton mining disaster so uh it's you know it's a uh story that you know uh, timothy later on was banned by radio stations like wabc uh, 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 because it was banned, a lot of the kids wanted to listen to it. So right. there was that controversy. It was huge on campuses. And uh, even though the critics hated it, you know, the, the, the kids were uh, shelling out their money to buy it, and it became a big seller. And Florence Greenberg, who was the owner of Scepter Records, thought that it could have been a $2 million seller if WABC and some of those other stations would have played it. But they didn't. But still, that controversial worked. And yeah, Timothy is one of the most controversial songs to ever land on Billboard right. because of its, its theme. Maxim, on that note, yep. we're going to take a break for a minute. We'll be right back after a few messages. If you are enjoying this podcast, check out our other programs on the BookSpeak Network, including the Brown Posey Press Show, Milford House Mysteries, and the Sunbury Press Book Show, and History Through Biography. All right, we've been talking to Maxim Furick about somebody else's dream, Dakota, the boys, and Timothy. And we've been getting pretty deep into this cannibalism subject and music and this song. A kind of a gross topic. Hopefully, you're, you all aren't listening to this over mealtime. Uh, <laughs> so let's pick it up from there, Maxim. Um, the song hits 17. Uh, how long was it on the charts? Uh, what's the rest of the story with this? Well, it they released it. You know, it it uh, it did good, pretty good in certain areas, and then it went uh, back down. And then they resurfaced it in different cities like St. Louis and Cleveland. And then again, it got that pop, so it started to climb up there, and it just lasted for quite a while. It was, I mean, it was on the charts for the longest time, and it was driven by the controversy. And it was, you know, people would listen to the song, and it sort of sounded like. Uh, Venus by the Shocking Blue. There was a, a 1969 song. Actually, it hit number one. But it was by a group called Shocking Blue from the Netherlands. And Timothy sort of mimicked that same driving, uh, you know, uh, instrumentation, that Creedence Clearwater feel. So, um, um, you know, people uh, uh, listened to the to the song at first, and then they started to listen to the lyrics and talk to each other about that. So, you know, again, the controversy just kept that song 
going and uh you know it was uh, it, it worked in their favor but unfortunately and according to rupert holmes it sort of backfired because he was hoping that the song would get the boys some notoriety but it was the song itself yeah. that became the theme you know the focal point rather than the the the, the music group the boys and uh, that part of it didn't work out as planned so as far as like the music and the catchiness of it would you say it, it was or wasn't a hit take the lyrics out do you think it would have been a hit without the cannibalism? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think what happened was if you listen to the song that's stripped down, it's pretty, uh, pretty ordinary. Mm-hmm. But what happened was they added the um, – uh, Howard Reeves uh, added the strings – and so it had this, you know, the strings and the violins and everything that just added another level of of, uh, of musicality and just made it so much better. So I think it was the the lyrics, the instrumentation, uh, and the uh, uh, the orchestration that just made this a uh, you know just a unique song that had hip hip potential. It uh, the instrumentation, the uh, orchestration was a lot like. Elton John's uh, Mad Man Across the Water, you know, similar vibe that was pretty, pretty unique for the 70s. So, um, again, it was a whole lot of things that happened. And then with Scepter Records, they had, you know, they they uh, said that it wasn't about cannibalism. And then when they couldn't uh, talk their way out of that, they had contest. Who was Timothy? A canary, a mule or a boy? So they had these Timothy contests, and then they resurfaced the the record three times, changing the lyrics, bleeping out hell, changing the lyrics, hungry as hell. So they did everything they could to go and promote the song. They did everything they could to go and ride the controversy, and you know they had they had a hit record. So when they say uh, the worst ever recorded, so you think that's because of the cannibalism angle? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't because of the uh, the, the way the song was put together. No, no, the the, the uh, lead vocals by Bill Kelly. Bill Kelly's one of the uh, one of the greatest lead vocalists of all time. You know, he was invited to join Pure Prairie League. He was invited to become the lead singer of Boston after Brad Delp left, and so he had many opportunities. And uh, but he just to the, to the stage yeah. so one of the best soaring. Uh, uh, vocals, you know, um, of anybody out there. And uh, so, uh, no, the song, it's a great song. Uh, they still play it and it's yeah. still listed on, you know, the, uh, the list of some of the, you know, one of the worst songs of all time. But, that's, uh, that's great. You know, our the, listeners controversial will, worked. Yeah. I think our listeners, will, this is kind of like a car accident. You just have to look right. So exactly, <laughs> maybe, yeah, exactly, maybe yeah. Timothy yeah. will be climbing the, uh, the download charts here after this podcast, we can only hope. Huh. Uh, um, so, um, you know, Dakota is the first name you mention in your book title after somebody else's dream. Tell me about Dakota. That's an evolution of things after the boys. Yeah, it's right? definitely an evolution. The uh, Sort of the driving force of the boys were two guys, Bill Kelly, who's the lead vocal, and Jerry Ludzik. And Jerry also did vocals and played guitar. So they had the dual harmonies and the uh, dual guitars and they would work so well together they were they were fantastic they were all about positivity you know they wrote songs like if it takes all night don't stop believing don't uh count me out and what they did was after they broke away from the boys they had a band called jerry kelly and then they became dakota 
And Dakota had a hit song called If It Takes All Night. But Dakota's claim to fame was they were able to get on a 35-day tour with Freddie Mercury and Queen. This was 1980. And this is when um, uh, Queen was one of the most successful stadium bands out there. I mean, if you watch some of the... uh, uh, some of the video uh, uh, of their performances at, uh, in Philadelphia at Live Aid and some of these other places. I mean, they were just huge. So Dakota was able to go and do that 35-day tour with them, but they did it on their own. They did it without help from management. And this just is just another example of their prowess and their work ethic and their drive. Uh, they did. They climbed high. They 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 were ferocious. They were hard workers. But they really deserved a lot better. in at, at the end, so it was too bad. But I mean, Dakota was just a fine song. And, and even today, you know, their uh, MCA uh, record "Runaway" is recognized as a uh, as an AOR landmark album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many, and you go back in music history, so many acts, so many bands that. Um, seem to be rising stars, might have had a hit, maybe didn't, but you go back and rediscover them and you're like, how were they not world famous? And there's always this story about management or opportunities lost or, you know, you certainly covered drugs as well. Sometimes that gets into it. So many reasons why it's so hard to get to the top and stay there, I'm sure. It it really is. You need all the breaks. You need the the gods, all the gods to be smiling on you, and you need the winds at your back and everything else. You know, you need that drive, and you need the the luck, too. And then I think you need to network, and I think networking is probably one of the most important variables. If you have people in your corner that can help open doors, then that that, uh, may be the key to success. And in the case of uh, uh, Jerry Kelly Band and Dakota. It was a guy named Mike Stahl, and Michael Stahl was a sound engineer, and he was a whiz. And he had worked for people like Kenny Rogers, Queen, Chicago. I mean, he worked with with everybody. He was Michael Jackson. He was so good. And it was Michael Stahl that got Danny Serafin, the drummer from um, Chicago, to listen to this demo tape of the Jerry Kelly Band, and then. Uh, uh, and then uh, Danny Serafin came down to Pottsville, Pennsylvania, to listen to the Jerry Kelly band. So it was their audition. Uh, Serafin liked him. He signed him to their to the label. So they had one one album out on Jerry Kelly, and then management wanted them to change the name to Dakota. So they did that, but uh, <laughs> it was the matter of. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of uh, networking, and certainly Mike Stahl helped open up so many doors for them. And uh, and uh, and yeah. Bill Kelly even said that of all the good things that ever happened to Jerry Kelly now, these and days, Dakota, it was because of Mike Stahl. You see, Dakota, you would think that might be a country band, a country western, or something. I guess not back then yeah, when they uh, were what, naming what bands after was geographical. When they had the name yeah. Jerry Kelly, the management wanted them to change the name to Dakota. And Bill Kelly said, well, what about Dallas? You know, there's a place called Dallas up in northeastern Pennsylvania. That would have, have relevance. But they said, no, it's going to be Dakota. So the, it was just mandated that they change their name. And that was just one thing that they had to put up with, you know, in, in corporate America. So, yeah. you know, but it's, uh, it was, this, you know, it's, it's, it's the same for a lot of bands, you know, to, to, to put up with the rules and regulations and, and, and all of that. So tell us about some of the other acts then. I, I know maybe half the book, a little more is about 
the boys in Dakota, but you get into a lot of uh, other acts from the area. Who really stands out in your mind? Who do you find interesting to talk about? Well, there were bands like Ralph. They were sort of uh, like a Blood, Sweat, and Tears or a Chicago band. They had a lot of horns. Uh, they had such good abilities, such well-produced uh, um, uh, singles and albums, but they just didn't have the promotion. Um, another band was the Glass Prism. They had a song out on RCA called The Raven. And just when they were getting ready to uh, tour with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, there was a fallout with management. And that tour with the Glass Prism and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, you know, uh, uh, fell apart. And that would have been such a wonderful opportunity for, for the local band, the Glass Prism. Same thing happened with Dakota. They were supposed to go on tour with Chicago. But again, because of infighting with management and Danny Serafin, that uh, came to a halt. So it was things like this. Everything needs to be aligned. And when, it's, you know, and that, and when it does, good things happen. Um, the, the, the Dakota had a song called, uh, had an album called Runaway. It was, uh, the 1980 MCA album and they had some of the best people, um, around, you know, in their corner. Uh, it was engineered by Humberto Gattaca who had worked with Michael Jackson and a number of other people. It was produced by Danny Serafin and Hawk Walensky. They used uh, Toto's Steve uh, Porcaro and Bill uh, from Chicago, Bill Champlin. So they had all these vocalists and guitarists and everything. And uh, MCA, uh, uh, the Runaway album on MCA was recognized in Europe as a AOR, album-oriented rock landmark. It was um, trend-setting, and it had great reviews over in Europe. It did well over there, but it just didn't resonate in the United States. And part of that was because, I don't know, I don't know if the public just didn't appreciate it, or if MCA, well, certainly we know that MCA didn't put a whole lot of promotional monies behind it, you know, taking out full-page ads and getting interviews in Mojo and Rolling Stone and Vibe. So um, I think management could have been more active. And they were just like uh, uh, bystanders. They just didn't do anything. Uh, most of the good things that happened, uh, you know, with uh, uh, Dakota happened because of their connections with Danny Serafin and Mike Stahl and, you know, these, these other folks, but it wasn't because of their management. The management didn't seem to do much at all from, from my research. So right. that's, that's sad because, but even today, uh, if the listeners would take a, a listen to uh, the Dakota's 1980 uh, album called Runaway on MCN, just listen to those songs. I mean, they are so well-crafted. It was well-produced. It, it's just an an excellent, seamless AOR album. I mean, it stands the test of time, and you know, it should have been uh, should have gone higher. All right, thanks, Maxim. Time for another break. Here, we're talking to Maxim Furick, somebody else's dream, Dakota, the boys, and Timothy. We'll be back in just a minute. New this month from Sunbury Press, Brian Kano's Grains of Sand, Tales of a Paranormal Life, just released under the Roswell Press imprint. You've seen Brian on Paranormal, Caught on Camera, and The Curse of Oak Island. Now you can read his memoir of his many strange encounters with the paranormal. All right, welcome back. We're talking to Maxim Furick, the author of Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy, published by Sunbury Press. You can get the book at sunburypress.com or wherever books are sold. 
Maxim, we were, we're going through the history of the boys, Timothy, Dakota, its evolution, and also getting into some of the, uh, the other acts from the area. And one I wanted to bring up was a, a favorite of mine as I was uh, working with your book. Uh, I stumbled upon hybrid ice, and I thought, wait a minute, I've heard of these guys. And I remember seeing them perform, and I can't place it, but it must have been circa late 70s, early 80s, when I was mid-teen years. And then, of course, they come out with uh, an LP or two, uh, I don't know, maybe five years later. Uh, What about hybrid ice? Tell me about that. Tell our audience. Yeah, 1971, Hybrid Ice was a rock band from Danville, and they were just starting out, and they were good. They had a lot of drive, but uh, other than the uh, musicality, they were great business people. So what they did, and they did this twice, they invited the boys to come to Danville to perform, and I believe they paid them $500. So they, the, the, the boys, again, who were peaking with Timothy, you know, back in 71, uh, but Hybrid Ice was the warm-up act. So Hybrid Ice was able to go and sort of ride on the coattails of the boys to get this notoriety. So um, they did a, a concert there, and then the second time around, and I forget what the date was, but it was on Bill Kelly's birthday. So Bill Kelly turned 21 when he was in Danville doing this concert. And Rusty, who was the uh, the leader of Hybrid Ice, Rusty Falk, would call up Bill Kelly and say, hey, Bill, do you remember where you were on your 21st birthday? So they would both laugh about this, this thing. But um, anyway, Bill Kelly shares the same birthday with Paul McCartney, which is an interesting little factoid. Well, who's, but, he, who's Paul McCartney? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but what happened, and this is interesting, um, uh, Rusty Falk uh, wrote a song called, uh, I believe it was Magdalena, that was cut covered by Boston. Mm-hmm. So Rusty went up to Boston to help Bostonize the song, as he puts it. So he got to know the guys from Boston. So at one point, Brad Delp left the band. So Boston was without a lead singer, and Brad was just like, did all of these wonderful vocals for with, you know, uh, when Boston came out with their first album, it was a monster album. Mm-hmm. Probably went triple platinum. I mean, it was so good. It had so many hit songs, there, but Brad Delp was the lead singer. He left. So um, the leader of Boston asked, reached out to Rusty and said, listen, who's the best lead singer that you know? And Rusty said, well, that'd be Bill Kelly. So what they did was they flew Bill Bill Kelly up to Boston to audition to be the lead singer for Boston. And he didn't make it. And Rusty Falk said that he should have made it because he thought that the guy that they they chose, and I forget who he is at this point, but he felt that Bill Kelly was better than him. But Bill Kelly could have ostensibly been the lead singer for Boston just as – he had been offered the position with uh, Pure Prairie League when Vince Gill was leaving. So Bill Kelly certainly had a whole lot of uh, opportunity. But uh, with uh, uh, Hybrid Ice, they were they were musicians, yes, but they were entrepreneurs. And even at this point, they do cruises. And what they do is Hybrid Ice will go and back lead the lead singers for people like Survivor. And, you know, a bunch of other bands who had who had hits mm-hmm. and they've been able to go and turn this into their own uh, brand, their own trademark. I mean, I mean, they what they do, they do well, but uh, they've been backing these uh, these, uh, you know, these nostalgic rock uh, singers 
and uh, and uh, they've been very successful. So I'm just, impressed with uh, their creativity and uh, you know how they're able to keep themselves out there. And 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 uh, Hybrid Ice also has been picked up by labels over in Europe, uh, just like Dakota. So they sort of followed in the path of Dakota. They played at the Stone Balloon in uh, Newark, Delaware, just like Dakota did. So, you know, there's some similarities there. But, yeah, they're a great band. They're from the, uh, from Montour County, from Danville, and uh, and they're still around doing their doing their thing. So they're, well, I, they're survivors. I remember running into them, and it must have been – it obviously wasn't 1971. I was only seven. So I wasn't out <laughs> listening to bands at that age. I was still probably listening to uh, oh, who knows what, Sesame Street, whatever was on at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I recall Hybrid Ice uh, – you know, a few years later, maybe 79. And so they must have been a veteran band at that point, maybe you know, playing covers. I don't know if they were playing unique, yeah, their own music, but more playing regionally. Yeah, yeah. Professionally. And, they, and they were doing their own music and they okay. were they were pretty creative and inventive. They were good. They were a hard rock band and uh, had a huge but following. I think, this day, they still I think do. their version of Magdalene is better than Boston's. So. Uh, people have said that. Yeah, I've yeah. heard that. So we'll let the audience judge. All right. Well, we're here in the last segment. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up here in a few minutes. But I wanted to give you a chance to talk about other things you've written and what you're working on now. So what's Maxim Furek been up to and anything else you'd like to plug? Yeah, I'm working on a, a self-help book called uh, Dream Gliding. Uh, uh, honoring the wisdom of the ancients. And uh, I contend that there's nothing new under the sun, that everything that we hear today from motivational speakers like uh, Eckhart Tolle and Anthony Robbins and uh, Deepak Chopra, you know, all of those uh, those sayings and, and, and inspirations have been articulated 2,000 years ago by people like Jesus Christ and Buddha and Muhammad. And, uh, and I talk about these. I talk about different th- uh, things. So it's uh, basically a, uh, an inspirational slash motivational self-help book. And this is something that I've been working on. But it's, um, it's very demanding because it's so cerebral and it just you really have to think and, you know, analyze and compare and all that. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've had uh, about maybe 15 chapters completed. But, um, you know, it's just sort of a side project. But um, I'm also working on a on a paranormal book and I've been able to get published in uh, periodicals like Fate Magazine, which is the Bible of the paranormal, uh, a thing called Normal Paranormal, uh, Paranormal Underground. And so I have a collection of paranormal stories that I'm putting together um, and I'm looking forward to getting that published. I mean, that's uh, I'm spending a lot of time on that. But I had the uh, fortune of meeting and interviewing Ed and Lorraine Warren back in 1988. Yeah. And the Warrens, if you're familiar with any of the horror movies, the whole franchise, The mm-hmm. Conjuring, One and Two, Annabelle, all of these, all of these uh, stories, these Poltergeist stories are about Ed and Lorraine Warren. So I interviewed them in 1988. They were in Jim Thorpe, and they were on a 15 – they launched a 15-city book tour. Uh, They had just uh, co-authored a book, and I was there to ask them all these questions and take pictures. And then I kept in touch with them over the years. They were in Connecticut. Uh, They had a pet chicken, and uh, you could hear in the background. But uh, they were really interesting people. They were Roman Catholic demonologists. They were from Connecticut, and they were involved in the – 
the Amityville Horror Haunting and the Schmurl House in West Pittston, Pennsylvania, which sort of got my attention because I went up there and I was part of that frenzy. And uh, so I interviewed them, you know, during that. So, um, you know, so that's the uh, the other work in progress. But, you know, I don't know how other authors do it, but I seem to be juggling several uh, topics, several projects at the same time. And I go back and forth and, you know, I'm, I seem to be able to do that with the same passion and and interest, you know, uh, you know, so um, I don't know. It seems to be working for me, but um, it's probably not by the book. But uh, again, like I said, it's it's working. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting, uh, you know, both of these books uh, published. Yeah, it's quite a <laughs> quite a difference between the two. Um, um, maybe not. No, you know, maybe not. You know, uh, when you talk about the uh, paranormal, you're talking about. Uh, something that you can't explain scientifically. So maybe at some point there's a scientific explanation. I don't know, you know, maybe, but then again, you know, maybe some of these things we'll never be able to explain. And, you know, they talk about God's awe that, you know, God is so, uh, you know, powerful, so mystical that we could never know, understand him. So I don't, I don't know, but I mean, I dabble in some of that and, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm just looking for, looking for answers. And sure. I, I think as we all are. Yeah. I, I wanted to, you mentioned the Warrens. Have you ever been to their museum in Connecticut? No, I haven't been up to their museum. Like I said, I've, I've been in touch with them. You know, they, they passed away, but I had been in yeah. touch with them numerous times and, uh, you know, had done interviews and everything. And, uh, but I haven't been up there, but that's on my list. I'll certainly uh, want to go up there and see, uh, you know, uh, what they have to offer there. So, yeah, we're going to close out. I just wanted to ask you, again, pulling us back to uh, somebody else's dream. Uh, how's the book been received? What kind of feedback have you been getting? Oh, so far, we've, we've had a uh, a ton of positive response. I mean, first of all, a lot of the baby boomers who knew the boys in uh, Dakota are just so grateful that somebody put together this book, you know, that ensures the legacy of these bands and also tells the story of the evolution of, of music over the decades. So it's all-encompassing. It's almost like an encyclopedia of rock and roll as seen through the eyes of these relatively obscure bands, you know, the boys and Timothy. So I think that any rock and roll fan, any rock and roll aficionado, you know, could pick it up and read it and just, um, you know, and uh, and navigate, um, you know, the ups and downs of this, you know, this challenging uh, uh, industry, you know, which is what it is. And, uh, you know, a lot of us would love to be rock and roll stars up on stage with that Stratocaster, but, you know, you know, but few are chosen. So yeah. it's, a, it's a long, tough road and, uh, you know, very few make it. But those that do, you know, I mean, they're rewarded with with money and fame and uh, and a lot of temptation. So it's a you know, there's a lot of moving parts there. So uh, but, yeah, I would hope that people would at least uh, Google, maybe Google my website of www.maximfurek.com. M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K.com, and just read about me and some of my interests and uh, and a little bit about the book. So somebody else's dream, Dakota, the boys, and Timothy. That's right. And while it's about the worst song ever recorded, according to some, it's definitely not according the worst. To so, according <laughs> to some boobers. Yeah. Know, what do they know? It's not the worst book ever written. In fact, it's a great book on the topic and on regional music. Maxim, it's been great having you on. 
Lawrence, thank you so much. Thank you for the deep and penetrating interview. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to uh, to uh, uh, working with you further. All right. We'll see you next time when your next book comes out. Very good. Okay. Take care. Yep. We've been thank talking. You. We've been talking to Maxim Furick, the author of Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy. 356 pages of stories and pictures about the Scranton, Pennsylvania area music scene from the 50s to the 80s. For sale at sunburypress.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.